Acts chapter 26. The first words of verse 1 in this chapter are, Then Agrippa said to Paul. We, we last left off with the Apostle Paul on trial for his outspoken preaching and proclamation of the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus came into this world to do. How Jesus came to die on a cross and to pay the penalty of sin that men and women should pay for themselves. But Jesus, and I don't mean this in a trite way, but I, I don't, but Jesus heroically stood in front of the judgment of God for, for those who would put their trust in Him. And He said, put that judgment upon me. Paul, Paul dedicated his life to, to spreading that message throughout the Roman Empire and to do what Jesus said, to make disciples of all the nations. But it got him into trouble. But God even used the trouble that he was in. And Paul was in trouble right now. He was on trial before a, a, a Gentile pagan king. Actually, a governor and a king. Festus and Agrippa. Festus was the governor, Agrippa was the king. And after some introductory words at this trial, now Paul is permitted to speak for himself. I just want you to get a hold of the ambiance of this moment. They're in an auditorium, and everybody's entered in with great pomp, with great fanfare. There's been ceremony, ceremony to mark out. Everybody should know who's important and who's not. Who's important? Festus is important. He's the governor. Agrippa's important. He's the guy with the crown on his head. Who's unimportant? The prisoner, Paul. And as Paul walks in there, he's allowed to speak his heart, to speak his mind. And he says, I'm here before commanders. I'm here before all the prominent men of the city of Caesarea. I'm before a governor and a king. And I get to proclaim the truth of God to them. That's why he says, look at it, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. What a great beginning. I especially love the beginning part where he says, well, I like where it says he stretched out his hand. You might think, oh, come on. You can't get something out of everything. No, it's significant. We're going to find out. Now, I just have to prepare you for this. I have to prepare you for some disappointment. We're not going to get to the end of the chapter this morning. Oh, and the end is so good. It is just one of the most dramatic scenes in the entire book of Acts. But what we have is, but at the end of the chapter, we're going to find out that Paul's hands were chained. He's a prisoner. And he's brought in before a king and a governor. And so he's chained. We know he's chained because he makes reference to the chains. So I want you to get that picture in your mind. How dramatic is it for a man to stretch forth his hand that's chained? He stretches forth his hand and it goes, he can't even get a full extension of his hand. And so here, that dramatic gesture, it sets, 
I know you think I'm just a prisoner. I know you think I'm worthy of these chains. But let me show you my chains. I'm not ashamed of them. I'll stretch out my hand. I'll emphasize the fact that I'm chained. And I'll say to you, verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you. King Agrippa, I'm the happiest man in this room. You may think you're happy because you have a crown upon your head and you have your weird sister, adulteress, weird, incestuous, whatever, beside you. You may think yourself happy because you're on a throne. You may think yourself happy, Festus, because you're the governor. I'm happy. And I'll tell you why I'm happy. I'm happy despite these chains that are on my hands. I'm happy because now I get to preach the gospel to kings and rulers, to a whole auditorium. Because please remember, and I just want you to set the scene accurately in your mind. It wasn't just Festus. It just it wasn't Agrippa and his, and his wife or consort, whatever you want to call her, Bernice, next to him. It says it was held in an auditorium and all the commanders and all the prominent men of the city were there. He was speaking before a big, prominent crowd. And I really believe, I really believe Paul felt that he was the happiest guy in the entire room. Why? Because he gets to speak forth God's truth to these men. Verse 4. Now he's going to begin telling his story. <coughs> Excuse me. My manner of life for my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. I find this interesting, verse 4 points out, that Paul says that he was born, he doesn't say it here, but he was born in Tarsus. We know that, that that's a province outside the area of Jerusalem and Judea. But from a young age, he came to Jerusalem. So apparently, probably, maybe from his older childhood, maybe, you know, 9, 10, I'm just guessing, I really don't know. But at a fairly young age, he came to Jerusalem and he grew up there. And he was raised, as he says, verse 5, According to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Agrippa, I want you to know that not only was I a faithful Jew, but I was known as a faithful man among the Jews. I lived the strictest Jewish life one could live as a Pharisee. By the way, I love the little dig that Paul gets in there too in verse 5. Did you notice that? Where he says, if they were willing to testify. Agrippa, I'm so guilty that my accusers won't even show up in court. That's how guilty you're being a little sarcastic, of course. That my accusers aren't even willing to be here. But if they were willing to testify, even they would agree that I was raised in a very strict Jewish ritualistic environment. Now, verse 6. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? He gets to the point very quickly here. Okay, yes, I was raised in a very strict, you know, Jewish ritual home. I grew up a Pharisee. This is my manner of life. Even my opponents would agree to this. But let's cut to the chase. Why am I on trial before you today, Agrippa? I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. The hope of the promise made by God to our fathers? Is that a crime? Of course it's not a crime. 
I'm here because of the hope that God put in the heart of all of his followers among Israel. That God would send a Messiah. That that Messiah would bear the sins of his people. That death could not hold that Messiah. And then that message should be preached out throughout the entire world. His trust in Jesus was an outgrowth of his trust and the hope of the promise made by God. And as verse 7 says, For this hope's sake I am accused by the Jews. And then... Before even waiting to get to the end, and this is something that good preachers do. I certainly don't always do it, but good preachers do it. Paul takes out that little dagger, you know, that preachers sometimes carry. I hope you felt that dagger from time to time. I, I hope that the preaching you hear week in, week out doesn't make you entirely comfortable. I hope at least occasionally... At least with some degree of regularity, you're feeling that dagger, that, ooh, maybe he's talking to me. Well, maybe I am. Maybe the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, more importantly. But he gets out that dagger right away, and before even waiting for a conclusion, he jabs it in. What does he say? Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Really now? Is this what I'm on trial before you now for, Agrippa? For the idea that God raises the dead? Agrippa? You should not think it strange that God could raise the dead. Since Agrippa was a custom, or excuse me, an expert in all the customs and questions which have to do with the Jews, he should have understood the belief that God could and would raise the dead. Indeed, what a great question. Why should it be thought incredible by us or by anybody that God can do anything? As Jesus said, with God all things are possible. Yet it should be especially easy for a man like Agrippa to believe that God raises the dead because of the clear statements in the Old Testament, such as those great statements from Job, where Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and on the last day I shall stand with him. Uh, Agrippa, you know these passages in the Old Testament. Why should it be thought strange to you that God raises the dead? He should have known it from the very nature of God, that God himself is eternal, and those who are joined to God are linked with him throughout eternity. And he should have known it, not only from the scriptures, not only from an understanding of God, he should have just known it from the longing and the, the inclination that's within every human heart. The Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts. And I know that the modern world has done all it can for the last couple hundred years to try to scrub your intuitive knowledge of eternity from your hearts. It's tried to tell you that you're the, the result of a meaningless accident that's happened through millions of years. That there is no God, there is no creator, there's nothing supernatural, there's nothing beyond this in the world. But you know that's wrong. You know it intuitively in your soul. Why? Because he has put eternity in your heart. Because eternity is for real. And there's a life beyond this life. And our preparation for that life in this life, it matters everything. You should have known this, Agrippa. I just imagine in my mind, oh, Paul looking directly at Agrippa when he says those words. Why should it be thought to you? Now, he's going to go back to sort of making his point here. Look back at verse 9. He says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I like this. He's backing off a little bit. He's saying, Agrippa, you reject Jesus. You think it's incredible that God should raise the dead. Well, that's okay. I used to be where you were. I mean, think of it that way, starting in verse 9. Indeed, I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, 
And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You know, I I love reading and studying the Bible because I am always learning new things. Always. After all my years of studying and teaching and reading the Bible, I'll still read things in there. I never saw that before. Well, verse 9 gave me one of those, I I never saw that before. And it's small, it's subtle, but to me it was quite meaningful. Look at how Paul explains his mentality before becoming a Christian. Right there in verse 9, he says, I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. Paul believed that he must persecute the followers of Jesus. He had to. It wasn't even an option to him. He was so deeply ingrained with his anti-God frame of mind, even though he was a religious man, that he felt he had to persecute those people who were the true followers of Jesus. So what did he do? Well, some of them, verse 10, he imprisoned, where it says he shut them up in prison. Some of them he killed, or at least he was participating in their death. Verse 10 says they were put to death. And some of them, he forced them to renounce Jesus. Verse 11, he says, that he compelled them to blaspheme. Did you see that in verse 11? So I want you to think through these things. These three things that Paul said he did to people when he persecuted. Some of them he put into prison. Some of them he killed. And some of them he forced them to renounce Jesus Christ. He forced them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. I find this fascinating. Because Paul later speaks of the great regret he had over his prior life as a persecutor. In one place, he says, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the people of God. In another place, he says, and I think he has the persecution in mind, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. I'm at the top of the list when it comes to sinners. Now, why? Paul wasn't a a particularly immoral man. He wasn't immoral in his sexual conduct. He wasn't immoral in, you know, seeking after addictions and intoxications and those kind of things. But Paul, Paul was immoral in a different way. He was immoral in that he was fighting against God and he had the wrong ideas about God. But please notice this. The greatest sin that Paul perhaps ever committed was when he forced believers to blaspheme and to renounce Jesus Christ. Now, I recognize that somebody in here might say, David, you're crazy. How can forcing somebody to blaspheme be worse than murdering them? Well, I understand, and I'm not going to press the point too too greatly here, but I do just want to say this, that it's possible that it might have weighed on Paul's conscience even more, because he thought, at least those people that I murdered, they're in heaven with Jesus. The people whom I compelled to blaspheme, I don't know if they ever came back. I don't know if they were more like a Peter who repented of his denial of Jesus, or I don't know if they were more like a Judas who never came back. I don't know. And I can imagine that on a dark night when Paul couldn't sleep and his mind was racing through some of the prior things in his life that he had done and he regretted that 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 might have tormented him at times. Maybe he saw the faces of people whom he had compelled to blaspheme. And he said, no, no, Jesus, I'm so sorry for doing that. In any regard, please notice verse 10 also says that he cast his vote against the Christians. This is the verse on which I draw the conclusion 
that Paul was actually a member of that great Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. But don't miss what he says in verse 11, where he says that he was exceedingly enraged against them. That's quite a profile of Paul the persecutor, isn't it? Paul was enraged and not just enraged. What does it say? Exceedingly enraged. I don't mean to make light, but he had an anger management problem, did he not? Oh, this was a man who, who could lose his temper. But actually, it was a manifestation. His rage showed that his relationship of God was not right, despite his diligent religious observance. Paul was crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's in his religious observance as a Pharisee and a faithful Jew. Yet there was something very wrong in his soul, despite all the religious ceremonies, because of the rage that was evident in his life. I wonder, and I'm just going to throw it out in passing. I wonder if that description would not fit somebody here. Uh, You're at church. It's Sunday. God bless you. That speaks to something about crossing a T or dotting an I. That's good. I'm glad you're here. There may be a rage in your life, an anger that shows that even though you can sit well and you enjoy and and God speaks to you and you, you get something great when we come together as believers, that rage in your life shows something's wrong. Something's wrong with your relationship with God. Can I please just tell you as emphatically as I can, seek God about it, seek prayer about it, come and I'll pray with somebody on the prayer team, seek pastoral counseling. But the rage that Paul had was an indicator that even though things were fine religiously, so to speak, in his life, not everything was good. Verse 12. While thus occupied... As I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road, I saw light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, for the third time in the book of Acts, we have a recounting of Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And it's interesting because every time it's recounted in the book of Acts, there's a few more details thrown in. There's a little more uh, fleshed out in the entire encounter. But, but here, as verse 12 says, he journeyed to Damascus, and he goes on his mission of, let's just face it, it was a mission of hate. Paul hated the followers of Jesus. He was exceedingly enraged against them. Should we not point out that these followers of Jesus were doing nothing subversive? They weren't killing anybody. They weren't persecuting anybody. They weren't imposing on anybody else's life. They just wanted to be left alone and live lives glorifying to Jesus, and they wanted to tell other people about Jesus. So it's not like he was on a, you know, mission against people who needed to be stopped in any external way. No, he just hated them. 
So he took his persecution show on the road, leaving Jerusalem and Judea and going all the way to Damascus. And I find it interesting that verse 12 says us that he went with the authority and the commission of the same religious leaders who accused him later. He goes under their authority. Now, I like this picture and and hold on to this because I'm going to come back to it later. Those religious leaders had a plan, had a purpose for Paul. Here's our purpose for you, Paul. We give you authority and we give you a commission. Go to Damascus and go persecute those Christians. Go find those followers of Jesus and vent your exceeding rage upon them. But before he could make it to Damascus, what happened? Verse 13 says that he saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. I think that's wonderful. Paul literally saw the light before he figuratively saw the light. You know, we use to see the light as a metaphor, don't we? To have your mind opened, expanded, just just informed about something that you were in the dark of before. Well, Paul used that as a way. Before he metaphorically saw the light, he literally saw it shining so bright that it was brighter than the midday sun. That's a way of showing a man that he was wrong. And here's this voice from verse 14. It says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Paul repeats the words that were recorded in Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 3. And those words emphasize so much. They first of all emphasize the personal appeal of Jesus. Jesus appealed to Paul very personally. Saul, Saul, by the way, just so nobody's confused, Saul was his word, name more associated with the Hebrew world, the Jewish world. Paul was his name more associated with the Roman world. Same guy, just two names he would go by. Saul, Saul, calling him by name and saying it repeatedly. I know you, I love you, I care about you. And then he informed him of the misdirected nature of a persecution. Why are you persecuting me? Paul, do you realize what you're doing? You you thought you're persecuting just some people who are out on the fringes of society and seem dangerous to you. No, you are persecuting me, the voice that speaks to you from heaven. Then I love the other aspect of that appeal, the, the folly of persecution. Why? Why are you doing this? Why? What good is it? What good is it doing you? Your life is filled with rage. You're spinning out of control. You're killing people. You're doing things that you never thought you'd do before. But you're do- why are you doing this? And then he says those words, verse 15, it's so powerful. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He hears those words. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Paul cries back up there. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Those words changed Paul's world. Changed his world absolutely. First of all, he immediately understood that Jesus is alive because only a living Jesus could speak to him from heaven. Secondly, he realized that Jesus reigned in glory because where was the voice coming from? From heaven to him with a shining radiant light. Jesus was alive and he was enthroned in glory in heaven. He wasn't damned in shame. And then he realized that when he persecuted the followers of Jesus, who he was really persecuting was Jesus himself. And in persecuting Jesus, he was fighting against the God of his fathers. This changed everything for Paul in a single moment. And you know what he had to do? He had to repent. 
Paul had to make a transformation of mind leading to transformed action. That's what repentance is. I'm going to say it again. I just kind of came up with that definition this week. Let's see if it works. Repentance is a transformation of mind that leads to a transformation of action. Now, please understand, Paul lived a pretty moral life before this. You know, it wasn't the wine, women, and song whole gambit for Paul. No, that that wasn't his problem. His problem was mainly in his mind. He had very wrong ideas about who God was and who Jesus was, and it was messing up everything in his life as evidenced by the murderous rage that seed through his person. So what did he have to do? He had to change his mind. And Jesus told him how he could change. Paul, I'm alive. Paul, I reign in glory. Paul, you're persecuting me. And when Jesus believed that, he could be transformed. Excuse me, when Paul believed that, he could be transformed by the power of Jesus. So after that critical moment, after that critical transformation, after that repentance in a moment, look at what happens now, verse 16. And we're going to conclude with this section, verses 16, 17, and 18. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, this is remarkable. Okay, please understand this. If you miss what I say now, you're not going to understand this section. These are the words of Jesus to Paul. This is what Jesus said to Paul on the Damascus road. The first thing he told him to do, verse 16, the first thing after Paul repented, Jesus wanted Paul to do one thing. Get up on your feet. I know that my glory knocked you to the ground, but you know what? Get up on your feet. This was not because his humility wasn't proper. His humility down on the ground, that was proper before. But now he was sent to go somewhere. And you know, you can't go anywhere unless you get up on your feet. Come on, Paul, let's get going. Stand up on your feet. Secondly, it's in verse 16. For I have appeared to you for this purpose. Now, I like the contrast. The religious leaders sent Paul to Damascus for a purpose. They sent him there with authority and with a commission. Now... He has to choose another purpose. I have the purpose. I have the letters of commission from the authorities in Jerusalem. I have those in my hand. But now I have another purpose given to me by Jesus. Which am I going to pursue? And that story is written in every life here. I don't know where you think you got a purpose for your life. Maybe you feel like your parents imposed a purpose on your life. That it really wasn't your choosing. They just gave to, well, okay, that's just what I got from my parents. Maybe you chose it for yourself. Maybe you rebelled against any other kind of purpose that anybody tried to put in your life. Say, no, I'm going to live my life, my way. I'm choosing my own purpose. Maybe you feel like your spouse, your husband or wife, they've imposed their purpose on your life. Maybe you feel like circumstances have just done it. Can I tell you? Jesus Christ has a purpose for your life, and you need to choose to embrace that. That's what Paul had to do. Jesus spoke to him. Remember, I've got a purpose for your life. 
do what I tell you to do. So what did he tell him to do? Look at verse 16. He says, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness. A minister is just a servant. A witness is somebody who's seen something, who has experienced something. I want to make you a minister and a witness of these things. And now I'm going to send you out to people so that they can hear what you have experienced. Verse 17 and 18. To whom now I send you to open their eyes. Now, at that moment, when Jesus spoke these words from heaven, we know this from other accounts, Paul was blinded. As a matter of fact, he remained blind, blinded. He couldn't see for several days. He couldn't see for several days until God healed him from that. I find it beautiful and a little bit ironic, maybe a little bit sarcastic of God, that God called Paul to go open the eyes of other people while he was still physically blind. Because his spiritual eyes, the eyes of the inner man, were finally being opened. And that was the best kind of sight. Now he could truly see. And now, Paul, that you can see, you see who I am and what I've done for you. Now it's time for you to go open the eyes of other people. And I love it in verse 13, how it describes how this happens. It says, no, excuse me, not verse 13, uh, verses 17 and 18. First of all, it describes as being turned from darkness to light. First, open their eyes, then be turned from darkness to light, then from the power of Satan to God, and then finally to receive forgiveness from sins. That's what it means. When your eyes are opened, you make a transition from darkness to light. Your life was once dominated by darkness. Now it's dominated by light. Your life was once dominated by the power of Satan. Now it's dominated by the power of God. And thirdly, you have received forgiveness of sins. I want to make an earnest appeal to to everyone here this morning. And I I just want to put aside whatever you perceive your spiritual status to be for a moment. Wherever you think of yourself as a believer or unbeliever or a seeker or whatever it is, put aside all that for a moment. I just want to know, is your life dominated by darkness or light? Is your life dominated by the power of Satan or the power of God? And do you know that you have forgiveness of sins? Being a follower of Jesus Christ Every one of those things should have a specific answer. You should be able to say, no, my life is dominated by the power of light. And anybody who looks at my life can see it. No, my life is dominated by the power of God, not Satan. And I know that I have forgiveness of sins. That's for you today. And of course, as Paul was saying this, he said it right there in front of Agrippa so that Agrippa would hear those words. Oh, by the way, I left one other thing off. At the final thing, it says that you have an inheritance among God's people. That's beautiful. That's the final thing that you have. No longer under the dominating power of the darkness. No longer under the dominating power of Satan. No longer under the the dominating power of sin. You have forgiveness of sins. But now you have an inheritance. You have a part among the people of God. And then we'll close with this. At the end of verse 18, Jesus. Again, that's why I wanted to emphasize. These are the words of Jesus. Let your ears perk up just for a moment. This is how Jesus describes his own followers to Paul. How does he describe his followers? Look at it. Among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's supposed to be you. 
You are to be sanctified. Now, do you know what that means? I think there's probably many people in this room, you don't exactly know what sanctified means. It sounds like a very religious word, and it is. It's not a bad word, but it's pretty religious. Sanctified simply means to be set apart. If you're sanctified, you are set apart. And specifically, in a context, it means to be set apart from the darkness unto the light. To be set apart from the power of Satan to the power of God. To be set apart from a life dominated by your sin to now a life dominated by forgiveness. Do you see the idea of set apart there? So he says, among those who are sanctified by what? By faith. That's beautiful. They're sanctified. They're set apart from sin and from self. And they're sanctified by faith in Jesus. They're not set apart by their own spiritual achievements, but by their connection of love and trust to Jesus Christ. Now, that auditorium where Paul spoke, it was filled with important people. It was filled with dignitaries. But we can fairly imagine that Paul spoke these words with special attention and with special focus right towards Agrippa. This was an invitation to Agrippa to become one of those people who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. His eyes could be opened just as Paul's previously were. We have to end here. I, I, well, the, it's going to be great next week as well. Now, please, we're by no means done this morning because we've talked about what Jesus has done for us. You're going to get to experience that right now. You're going to get to experience it by faith and by instrument that God gives us to connect to what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that's the receiving of the Lord's table. That's taking of the bread and the cup that speak to us of this new covenant that God has made for us in Jesus. But it's up for you to receive it. There's not a single person in this room who has to leave here dominated by the power of darkness. Not a single person here needs to leave dominated by the power of Satan. Not a single person needs to leave this room being unforgiven. It's offered to you right here by Jesus. The message still goes forth, even as it did years ago. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd really prepare us now to receive what you have for us at your holy table of communion. When we think of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we want to connect to it, and we want to connect to it by faith. Not a blind leap of faith, but a reasonable grasp based on who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross. Help us to connect with it and to receive it. Help us, Lord, as we sing our prayers to you now. Prepare our hearts to receive from your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.